Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or as I like to think of it, Dear Helen and Hank. It's a comedy podcast where two brothers and sometimes a special guest answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. Helen, do you know when you first move into a house, sometimes the the house doesn't have numbers on it. That's that's concerning. What 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 the blazes is this nightmare? Yeah, well I think it's okay as long as you address the situation. Oh, Jesus, Dad. <laughs> How are you doing, Helen? <laughs> uh, everybody, this is Helen Zaltzman. Hi. She uh, is from the podcast The Illusionist and also several other enterprises of of uh, great quality. Um, I'm a big fan and got to hang out with Helen at PodCon, and she graciously agreed to take over for John as he is traveling uh, with Partners in Health right now, which is really cool. And I just got an update from him that says things are going very well. Oh, um, So it's turned out well for him and for me because I'm delighted to be here. That's and also great. I've made a question answering podcast uh, for 12 years, <laughs> so I feel like I've been training for this moment. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it, it, well, there's a number of questions that came in that Helen was like, "Yeah, no, don't I don't talk about roommate stuff anymore." It's just <laughs> it broke me. When you've been doing a question podcast for 12 years, you've done all the roommate questions. You, you know how uh, there's that often repeated quotation, I think, from a Russian author saying, "All happy families are happy in the same way. All unhappy families are unhappy in a unique way. Unhappy mm-hmm. roommates, I think, are unhappy in the same way, pretty much." <laughs> Just like do the dishes, do the dishes. <laughs> Never have a dish that isn't done is the main thing. It really is uh, though, and it's amazing the, yeah. the rip in one's contentment that can be created by undone dish. Yeah, yeah, we have the same situation in our office. We had to institute a no dish policy. If there's a dish in the sink, uh, then then like it's like all hands on deck time for a meeting. That seems like. <laughs> A bit more effort than just cleaning the dish or smashing it into pieces on yeah, the floor. That's exactly right. That's well, or that's what we should do. We should be like, if there's a dish in the sink, we're taking it outside and shooting it. <laughs> it's Montana. This is how we solve problems. 
desperate times. Tell us, tell, tell me about your uh, question answer podcast. Uh, it's called Answer Me This, and we answer questions. That's it from the listeners. And you know how that goes. <laughs> and then uh, tell me about The Illusionist. And the Illusionist is an entertainment show about language yeah. and how and why we use it the ways we do. Oh, I like it so much. Oh, it's wonderful. So I much. really appreciate it. Uh, the hard work that goes into your work uh, making my life more enjoyable. Yes, well, that's the whole point. Okay, well, let's get to some questions from our listeners. This first one comes from Becca, who asks, Dear Hank and Helen, my dad recently purchased a new car, and it's great. Oh, However, cool. on the side of the passenger yeah, on the side of the passenger seat, there's a sort of cup holder, except it's long and skinny. I have attached an image for reference. We'll put it up on the Patreon. The only logical explanation that I have is that it is a banana holder. How is that the oh, only logical? logical explanation for anything well it does look look to be the shape of a banana marginal it's kind of like banana shaped i could put a banana in there i don't know <laughs> i like bananas maybe it's a good it's good okay what else do you have though okay. what could it be well i'm looking at it and it looks like it's sort of the size of say a, a, a slim paperback book or uh for a sure or for a british sandwich not an american one because those have a lot more filling or <laughs> just a chill, normal sandwich. You know, a meager a sa- sandwich, a slice of yeah. toast, or right, mm-hmm. a paper map. Yeah, sometimes. Oh, a paper, a paper map. Who has those? Sometimes right. I'm in England and someone gives me a sandwich, <laughs> and it's just two pieces of of bread with like with like mustard between them. I'm like, this yep. is not. This is just bread. Well, you're giving me flavored bread. Brexit took the fillings away. Yeah, you guys, you only have so many things left. Just more bread. <laughs> you got plenty of bread. That's good. <laughs> and and that's glad. made out of mud, so it's very sad. I feel like, well, I mean, we need a place to put our phones these days. Maybe mm. there's a, are there any charging ports in it? It's hard to tell from the picture what's in it. I'd imagine there's going to be quite a lot of detritus gathering in it. Yes, whatever it's definitely. Yeah. What you do need to make sure is that this pocket is big enough to get that hose in at the car wash mm. to suck out the stuff. Because otherwise, you know... It's it's going to be a super nastiness. 2025 rolls around, and, and that's, that's, a, that's just a bacterial culture. There could be some very important sure. bacteria in there. I mean, look how penicillin was uh, discovered. Do you think it could be some kind of device for gripping your seat nervously whilst the driver takes a turn recklessly <laughs> well i can't tell if this is an american or british car so is this the driver's seat or is it the passenger seat if it's america this is the passenger seat yeah it looks uh, because the photo is approaching from the right hand side of the car mm-hmm. and uh, therefore it suggests to me an american passenger unless becca has flipped this photo and why would she do that just to be confusing for us okay so it's a pass- passenger seat i mean I think you get like an iPad mini in there. A, f- I, a book of puzzles. It does. A Bible. Yeah, a, a Bible. Maybe it's the Bible holder. Yeah, for car Bibles. For your car Bible. Where else are you supposed to keep it? In the car altar. Who's got room for that? I'm glad that we answered this one so well, Helen. <laughs> I feel our duty has been done. Can we, uh, can you answer a question for me that is about words? Jamie says, Dear Hank and Helen, why are honeymoons called honeymoons? They have nothing to do with honey or the moon. So I assume that we, like, we are honeys. Like, I call Catherine honey sometimes, so there's that. And then there's, you know, it's like going to the moon. Be all <laughs> alone with just the two of you, right? There's no one else in the whole world. Yeah, there's no gravity, so you're floating around 
honey's on it, but that's a very sweet and romantic explanation. It's very, um, very sexy too. Apparently, the moon. I don't know. Oh, the moon's really? actually that's pretty what abrasive. You're into it. <laughs> from from what I've from what I've heard from astronauts, the moon is pretty abrasive. Yeah, I guess there hasn't been a lot of moon-based romance so far in the history of humanity. Not Those... that we know of, though they did go in two-person teams, so there's only two people who, on each of those missions, know what actually happened down there. Yeah, but I suppose if you're wearing those uh, all-encasing spacesuits, and if you try to well, get that's... any body part out, it'll just explode. <laughs> that's, that's when you're on the surface. When you're in the capsule, you're still on the moon, and then they take their clothes off and they have sleeping bags, and you know, all the best fun gets had in sleeping bags. Yeah, okay, that's astronaut business. Um... Uh, this um, is a little less interesting than I think Jamie might have hoped. Um, honey is to represent the marriage's sweetness because it's new. And then the moon mm-hmm. is probably saying that sweetness will only last one lunar month. <laughs> or, maybe, <laughs> or maybe even just until the moon wanes. Okay. Um, okay. And th- when did, did this become like a broad usage sometime recently? No, I think it's I think it's about five hundred years old. But then, oh, okay. I'm just I'm just trying to reflect on how long has the concept of marrying for love been around? That feels like a more recent concept. So maybe this was a quite optimistic uh, thing to <laughs> to give to marriage. <laughs> yeah, you're supposed well, yeah, to enjoy this, uh, yeah. but for only up to twenty eight days. So it's just yes, it, it's the sweetness of the first of the first lunar cycle. Yeah, is the honeymoon. That makes a lot of sense. And I do actually find that quite interesting. Don't okay. sell yourself all short. Right, all right, I know that fine. there's so many interesting things that you come across all the time. And so so all of this, all of this, uh, what's it called? Etymological stuff. <laughs> Probably all see like all the, all the boring explanations that are boring to you are exciting to all of us lay people. I, I found uh, something that I did think was exciting, which because uh, a lot of languages, they just have... A similar expression to honeymoon, uh, but German, it's Tinsel Week. <laughs> so in Germany, it only lasts a week. But it's so shiny while it lasts. It's very, sh- I guess. Like, I think of Tinsel and I think of trash. Like, this is <gasps> bad trash wow. that I have to clean up that, that like, n- makes it more difficult to recycle my Christmas tree. Right, well, I suppose then that's feeding into my earlier observation that marriage wasn't supposed to be enjoyable <laughs> until recently <laughs> <laughs> it's your bad trash week things will get better after the first week we promise or not, it's tinsel but, week or the, maybe they won't get better but at least there won't be tinsel on the floor that's right It'll be less to clean up <laughs> this next question comes from Boyd who asks dear Hank and Helen how do you write a poem in another language that you can't speak especially when you can barely write one in your own language this poem is due tomorrow and I need something that rhymes with facile Boyd well well my immediate answer would be you don't write a poem in a language you can't speak it seems like being at least somewhat competent in a language is uh, an essential requirement for successful poetry writing unless you're just going to do like jazz poetry where you're just like this word looks like another word put them together whatevs yeah that's good okay first of all do jazz poetry Boyd I know that we're too late to actually help you because I assume that this question came in not in the future (laughs) this podcast is going to be released in some days but uh, first of all, I did find that Rhyme Zone has a Spanish language Rhyme Zone oh. called Rimar.io that I pronounced very well. Um, 
And so you can find things that rhyme with facile, like Brasil, uh, for example. Uh, even though that isn't a sp- Spanish-speaking country, that is how they say it. Uh, so there's that. You've got Remar.io on your side. And then secondarily, you should say to your teacher, why are you making us do a thing that basically is impossible because we are new to this language? And poetry definitionally requires a mastery of language. And maybe they would appreciate the eloquence of you rejecting the assignment. Right. You could do it in Spanish. Maybe you could do it rhyming in Spanish. That would be very good. Well, if you did that rhyming in Spanish, then you might have inadvertently completed this assignment. So that would be a great result. Well, and maybe in the future, other people wouldn't have to do it. That's what it's all about. Mm. It's about... It's about like uh, one getting a good grade, but two saving all of your the people who were will in the future be coming through this class. Right. So you're just creating a legacy void of conscientious objection to the foreign language poetry class. This is a question from Tim, who says, "Dear Hank and Helen, I know in job interviews you're not supposed to talk badly about your current or most recent job when you're asked why you're wanting to leave or have left that position, but." How do you address it if you're leaving, say, because the management is ineffective and unreliable without coming across as a complainer? Mm. Are we the best people to ask this? Because I don't know about you, Hank, but I have not been in a conventional working environment since basically forever. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a bad person to ask about it because I do. I am on the side of the job interview fairly frequently where I'm the one listening, Mm. not the one talking. Um, And so when I'm listening to somebody, I am worried about them being a complainer. I am. I'm. And and so there this is something to be treated with delicacy. Of course, there are situations absolutely where the management is bad. And that is why you are leaving. Um, And in a town like mine that is quite small, I'm actually aware of some places where management is quite bad. And Mm. so can be like, yes, I agree with you. (laughs) Um, And you don't even like I might not even have to ask that question, which is why it's nice to uh, work in a small town, uh, but also why it can be bad. But I I think it is a thing to be treated with care because you want to seem not like somebody who's saying, I am better than the people who are my bosses because nobody wants that per like nobody wants like that relationship um, because it it makes the work environment inefficient um, when there there is somebody who is sort of constantly questioning everything that's happening. Um, also, presumably, you don't want to employ someone with the suspicion that down the line they're going to be yeah uh, you know complaining about you to someone else yeah. In another interview. That is definitely true. So the way to maybe phrase it is to uh, is to turn it on yourself and say, I want more opportunity. I really, like, compared to what we're doing at that workplace, what you were doing at this workplace is more exciting to me. And, and then say why. Say, like, say the things about this new workplace that are exciting to you and changing the frame from I didn't like this to I am very excited about this because that's oftentimes you know something that uh, prospective hirers want to hear is um, is sort of like how much you understand the potential work that you're going to be doing and why you're going to be excited to do it 
uh, even if it's not like a hundred percent true, because <laughs> obviously, like we're all doing work, and some of it's going to be some of it's going to be boring and hard and uh, and trudgery. But um, but finding the things that you're going to love about it, and actually, once you start actually loving those things and taking the time to appreciate, uh, you know, the value that you get to be adding to the world, um, yeah, it's really good. Isn't the catch-all thing to say? that you're ready for new challenges. I'm ready for some new challenges. Why not? Because you're not saying, oh, you're better than the old job, which I th- think still has an implicit, you might be a mm-hmm. bit of a sneak to it. I mean, like yeah. when when this question comes up, Hank, when you're interviewing someone, what are you mm-hmm. hoping to find out from that question? Is it just a trap to see whether or not they're a complainer? Uh, no, not. A, it, it, I hope very much that none of the questions I ever ask in a job interview are traps. Um, <laughs> I, what I am worried about, is, and like this isn't a disqualification, but um, but what I want to know is when I call that person for a reference, like am like are those stories going to line up? So like, am I going to hear? that like they didn't like working with them and that they were fired and in fact in the interview they said that they decided to leave on their own and i'm going to find out that like i was lied to which is a problem um and i'm and i'm looking for just greater insight into the person's understanding of their of their career path and of their relationship with other workplaces well that seems reasonable you've convinced me you're hired I'm so excited to be working with you. <laughs> there are no benefits. <laughs> I get to learn something new every day, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> sure like, okay. for Didn't example, this, this this next question from Ava, who asks, why is refrigerator spelled without a D while fridge has a D, pumpkins and penguins, Ava? Yeah, fair point. Do you know the answer? I do. Well, sort of. I mean... None of the answers are, you know, absolutely slam dunk. But it's probably because when they abbreviated refrigerator to fridge, if you just took the F-R-I-G, firstly, that's a little bit of a rude word in, in Britain. Don't know if it is in the States. Yeah. If you saw F-R-I-G written down, you might not know yeah. how it's pronounced. You might think, oh, Oh, is I it? would definitely say frig. Oh, right. Okay. And, yeah. and, and other people might say frige depending on like which oh. which um which vowel system and consonant they were subscribing to but if mm-hmm. you put that d in i think most people who are accustomed to english would know that it's supposed to be pronounced fridge so it's a short i and a j sound rather than a g sound yeah because we have that in a bunch of other words like like judge yeah or bridge is how you make that noise or fudge. bridge Fudge. Yeah. All wonderful words. Make it look like bridge and fudge and people will get the gist. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, like, someone just decided that. I guess, like, I'm not used to the idea of people just deciding how words are spelled. But I guess guess we do that with every word. Yeah. Every word somebody picks. Well, or it just happens incrementally because this did start off as frig and I've definitely seen it in books as an abbreviation. But I I think the more the device was common the more the abbreviation would become relevant to people's lives. Because, say, right. 100 years ago, how many people had cause to say fridge or frig um, mm-hmm. as, or write it down? Right. And uh, and then I think it just, yeah, once it catches on, people do kind of what's easiest. That's uh, what a lot of quirks of language are, just people making things easy because we're lazy. Right. 
lazy so people. people were saying this word a bunch before it started getting written down and then somebody I mean, was like that, that we're, now seem... we have to write this word down we had this problem in a very early episode of dear hank and john where somebody wanted to figure out how to spell the word use like as per use because people were shortening the word usual and there's just not like we don't have a good way of making that sound and i've seen it people trying to abbreviate it particularly in subtitles of uh like netflix shows or whatever like they're watch like watching with the subtitles and they're like oh the person subtitling and how to figure out how to spell use yeah that's rough and they spit yeah like you're a you know stuff about language how would you spell use <laughs> well i'm thinking how easy it would be to spell it in russian because they have a letter that that is definitely you and a letter that is je and English has mm. really let itself down with its flexible spellings. I think I've seen it spelt U-Z-H. Uh, I'm translating Z to Z yeah. because I'm on an American show right now. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but would you, if you saw that, would you, would you just be baffled, or would you infer from the context that it was huge? I think it'd be. I think I would know that it was huge, especially if there was an umlaut. I don't know why I feel like that would help, but I feel like it would help. Would that mean it was more like ooze? I think that's what umlauts make something two syllables. Do they? Is that what they do? You've created extra problems. I mean, I'm not. I don't. <laughs> I don't really speak any of the umlaut using languages, but that's what I'd gathered. Okay. Yeah. I have no idea. It's a mess. Just I thought say they just usual. made it more oomy. <laughs> this next question comes from Sarah, who asks, Dear Hank and Helen, I saw an article that kids can't read analog clocks anymore. Just to be clear, I was born in 1980 and I can't read analog clocks. Everyone's all <laughs> mad about it. But really, we haven't just gone all digital by now. Is there some reason why analog clocks are better or more practical than digital? Is it just because they look better on a wall? Sarah reason for this? That's a very good name specific <laughs> sign off, Sarah. <laughs> Do you think Sarah uses that often? Uh, possibly. If not, she should. Um, is it, So is, is Sarah reason for this, Helen? I, okay, I can think of some reasons why analog clocks still exist. One, it's much easier to see them from across the room. That's when true. I'm trying to sneak a look at the time from someone else's wristwatch because I don't wear one, if it's digital, no chance. If it's an Apple Watch, no. absolutely no chance. But oh, yeah. Well, because it's not even, sometimes it's not even on until they look at it. I used to wear um, a, a watch around my neck um, and um, it was hmm. useful. A lot of people were like, that's so handy. I can see the time just by looking at you. And there was a cafe I used to frequent and they called me Lady with the Timepiece. <laughs> <laughs> Did they call you that in English? In English. That sounds like a, that sounds like a translation from another language, <laughs> "Lady with the Timepiece," or that just the t the title of a very undramatic comic book hero. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I'd say that would be one reason. I would say that um, there's there's less to go wrong in the analog clock. There's just the engine that drives the hands around. Whereas digital, you've got to have the display sure. that doesn't break. Because as soon as one of the lines is out, then the time is always wrong. You're like, is it six? Is it eight? Um, oh, right. Yeah. Well, that, that kind of digital clock. Now, now you're talking about digital from the previous eras of digital, but yes. Sure, I am. And then the third reason, I think, is that it provides more of a visual conception of the passage of time and the way the day is divided up. And, and I think maybe there's mm -hmm. a value to a lot of people of that. Yeah, I have a problem where the difference between three, like 52 and 401 is so dramatic 
for me hmm. that I'm just like, I go from being like, oh, I have plenty of time to get all of my work done. And in the course of like nine minutes, I go from that to being like, oh God, oh no, <laughs> everything is ending and there's no way I'm going to be able to get my work done. I should just give up and not do anything. Do you have uh, some kind of blood be- sugar crash right before 4 p.m. every day? <laughs> I don't think that's it. It might be. Uh, I think that I just have a really bad time, like with you know all of the cognitive bias toward like not having that number turnover in the same way that I find a ninety-nine cent sandwich much cheaper than a dollar five sandwich. Mm. Uh, which is amazing that we can have a ninety-nine cent sandwich anyway. What a world! Uh, but I don't have that experience as much with an analog clock because like you see the continuity of the whole thing. Um, and oftentimes when there's an analog clock on the wall, what I'm looking for isn't like, I know what hour it is. I'm just watching the hand to be like, how much more time do I have in this particular hour? I had a quite useful thing. I was staying with a, a friend last month and they have a cuckoo clock and every half mm. hour it makes a cuckoo noise. And, um, and I'd been reading about the Pomodoro technique of dividing your day up into, was it 20 I or 30 minutes? Yeah, I was... Um, yeah. And I was like, well, I haven't consciously done that, but when the cuckoo cuckoos, I think, oh, that's another half hour gone. Did I mm-hmm. achieve things in that half hour block? Get a cuckoo clock for optimizing your day. Yeah, instead of a tomato, um, which is, I guess, why that's called the Pomodoro technique, because that means tomato, right? It does, yeah. Is it is it named after someone like uh, Alex Pomodoro? No, actually, it's named because the guy who started it had a little like a timer that looked like a tomato. I'm pretty sure that, that that is where it came from. Rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> what if your Do timer you mean just it's rubbish? Like a timer? Like... No, I'm not saying your explanation's rubbish. I'm just saying if you, if you okay. name something after that. That makes me sad. What if your timer just looks like a timer you got free with a, you know, from the gas station or something? I mean, because well, you call it something else, but <laughs> because you had a tomato, you could have called it the tomato system, but that sounded really bad. So you were like the Pomodoro technique. And then all the people who are like into time management and efficiency were like, that sounds very official. <laughs> And it sounds good. That's why. It's the whole reason why everything is everything, because it sounds good. All right. I'll buy into that. It does sound good. Uh, would you like a question from Elliot? Yes, please. Great. Elliot says, Dear Hank and Helen, I recently gave a presentation at my job in which I cited a bunch of statistics about the global trends for poverty and health access. While I managed to check most of the statistics, one that surprised everyone was the assertion that there are a third as many people living in poverty today as in the year 2000. It's understandable that it surprised them, because it's wrong. The number is actually half as many. The rate of poverty is one third, not the number. Afraid I don't understand that, sorry. I even had conversations about it with my boss afterwards, and now I feel guilty and awkward that I told them all incorrect information. How do you deal with saying something wrong in front of people? Dubious advice is preferred. I have not met E.T. Elliot. Elliot. Um, <laughs> How often I, does Elliot get that? <laughs> um, this happens to me all the time, both in uh, because I make informational content on the internet and because I speak with authority in uh, in spaces where I am the boss and so people don't question me. <laughs> uh, and so I worry about it a fair amount. And Elliot, you were doing the right thing by worrying about it. 
And in this particular case, I think you are totally in the clear to send an email to clarify and say, I said something wrong and I want to, to, to clear it up. The difference between, you know, the poverty rate being one third and the number of people in poverty being one half because the number of people has increased. So there are still more people in poverty uh, than there would have been like if no, like if there had been no population increase. So the rate of poverty has gone down more than the number of people has. Sorry if I did a bad job of explaining that. But you can write an email in which you explain that and be like, hey, everybody, I got this wrong and I wanted to make sure that this uh, false stat didn't get shared. And it's a quick email and it shows two things. One, that you are an efficient uh, communicator. And two, that you care about getting stuff right. And I think that like both of those things ultimately actually make you look better than if you hadn't like gotten the thing wrong in the first place. Yeah, I liked what, what, how you said to frame it as you not wanting them to spread incorrect information on it as, as a result of Elliot's mistake. Right, right, because you definitely don't want that. No. Want, want that to sort of come back on them. Throw that in there. Classy move. Which reminds me, actually, that this podcast is brought to you by Accurate Global Health Statistics. Accurate Global Health Statistics, compiled by experts to be disseminated by all of us accurately, even when we get something wrong a little bit. This episode is also sponsored by Kanana, the bananas cultivated to fit perfectly in your car by a cup holder... <laughs> a glove compartment or just that weird little niche uh, behind the gear stick if you have a manual transmission kanana get 10% off your first bushel of kananas at kananananana.na <laughs> so much better than our usual fake sponsors okay i write a lot of ads for some bullshit <laughs> this podcast is also brought to you by the new combination pomodoro cuckoo clocks where instead of a bird that pops out once every half hour it's a tomato it's just a it's a live it's just a real tomato that slowly rots <laughs> showing you that all life is fleeing and that you should get some work done the time marches on how very yoko ono <laughs> And this podcast is also brought to you by Frigg. If you sick of your <laughs> fridge having a D in it, not anymore with Frigg. Available in minibar, uh, fridge free. This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep. It's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Trobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt, 
I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. And lock your enemy in it and throw them into a quarry size. I wanted to mention, uh, as part of uh, this, in this period of Elliot's question about being right about stuff, that in the last episode of this podcast, I believe I said that the atomic number of nitrogen was six. It is seven. I'm not, I'm not sure anybody took that one and started like shouting it around to people. Uh, but if you did, go apologize and uh, make a correction and say that it was Hank Green's fault. Well, it's too late now. It's too late for some people. Uh, it's too late for all the people who listened to that episode and not this one. And uh, I really do deeply apologize. <laughs> uh, that That is the definition of nitrogen. Seven protons. Well, that's sobering stuff. All right, I got another question. It's an important one that is a little bit sad. It's from Amanda who asks, Dear Hank and Helen, My family considers the squirrels who live in our backyard to be like our outdoor pets. We have names for them, and we pretend that we can tell them apart. Um, I actually have uh, met people who can tell the squirrels in their yard apart, which I find uh, to be remarkable. And I don't know if I trust them, but they really seem like they can do it. Anyway, I was recently driving through a a nearby neighborhood and I accidentally hit a squirrel with my car. I felt very bad, but to be fair, the squirrel made several poor life choices at the end there and my alternative was swerving and possibly hitting another car. Well, what a trolley problem. (laughs) The squirrel problem. (laughs) Yeah, you've solved it. Uh, Wow, yeah. They do sometimes make several poor life choices at the end there. But then I wondered... Did my squirrels know this squirrel? Are you going to be in so much trouble if they did? Was it a cousin? A childhood friend? How far does a squirrel's social sphere extend? Maybe it was one of my squirrels on vacation. Please help. XOXO, gossip squirrel. Well, if you're uh, observing these squirrels so closely, maybe you'll be able to see if they enter into a period of mourning. Right. What does a mourning squirrel look like, Helen? Like a black squirrel like they have in Toronto? <laughs> so they're all just very sad there is that what you're saying well they're just very goth <laughs> could be that as well um i yeah or if there's just a uh if there's a period of dourness you know they're leaving like piles of acorns untouched sort of a symbolic gesture i guess but like a, squ- um, <laughs> a squirrel shiver happening yeah exactly um i uh I, you know, I, my guess is that a squirrel's social sphere uh, is pretty localized, though, like you would think I, I would imagine that it's like a, a number of overlapping circles. So like different squirrel groups probably overlap and there's probably a group 
Like there is some overlap that leads all the way out to that squirrel that you got accidentally. And I do wonder, like this relationship that we have with squirrels, this like very, like we have created an environment that's kind of perfect for them in the city. Uh, Good food options. Like we like to plant nut bearing trees that are great habitat for them. We keep all of their predators away because it's harder to be a coyote in the, or a fox in the city now. Um, And, and we don't actually study them very much in the way that we might study uh, an animal in a natural ecosystem, which I think maybe we should do more of. I want to understand a lot more about squirrels and how they work, how like a new squirrel, uh, I, I keep trying to thinking of the word harvest, but I mean, I guess they're litter. <laughs> oh, so like okay. the new, the, <laughs> yeah, the new, like the new, uh, the new, the newbies, the new ones, like how many of them stay in the same place? Do they travel? Do they, do they go like, do they go on like walkabouts and try and find other squirrel groups to become a member of? How many of them survive at all? What are the leading causes of squirrel fatality? Is it like a lot of starving or is it mostly cars? Or old age. Um, yeah, maybe. My guess is not so much. <laughs> or irresponsible hoarding for winter. Right. Yeah, just or yeah, not not preparing. I imagine there's a lot of squirrel death in the winter time, especially here in Montana. Um well, and I didn't look into yeah. uh, squirrel population and breeding and interbreeding because I thought no good can come of it. We'll probably only make Mar- Amanda feel Worse. Right. So, in the interest of making her feel less bad, I'll just say I've lived in some pretty squirrel heavy places. Britain has many squirrels. Uh, and mm-hmm. I rarely see them being convivial with each other. They usually seem to be chasing each other or ignoring each other. I think that the squirrel chasing might, might, that might be fun, right? Isn't that squirrel fun? I don't that know. That looks like fun to me. Well, yeah, but I mean, you're applying your human experience onto it. Maybe the squirrel, That's it's true. like, it's like having a commute that it hates. Who knows what's going right. on in the squirrel's mind? The other thing that I believe we have we have also said on this podcast before is that there are no nice ways for squirrels to die. So keep that in mind. Are there any nice ways for anything to die? Uh, certainly in nature, I think it's painful 100% of the time. Well, at least being amanded out of this life uh, would be swift. Yeah, we're hoping. Um, Here's a question from Chloe. She says, Dear Hank and Helen, my friend has a deviated septum and she's getting it surgically repaired in a few days. I'm very excited for her to be able to breathe and smell things, but I'm also very excited for me because I think that type of stuff is interesting. Am I allowed to pepper her with questions about the procedure and how everything works? Would that be inappropriate? Surgery and snot? Chloe. Oh, boy. I mean, like... I, ho- I think this, of course, comes down to the individual person. But if it's me, I want to tell you everything about it. I think that's a pretty common thing. And then I can relate to this now because I had a major medical experience last year. And people love asking me about it. And then they love talking about their own surgery and fluids that <laughs> spurted out of surgical orifices in their bodies and other gore. It's just not good over a meal. But I would say people... I'm very excited to, to say this. Um, were, were you excited to tell them about it? Um, really depends on the person. I think if they were taking mm. a kind of slightly salacious interest, then yes. And if they were just doing the whole, oh, poor you, must have been awful. I'm like, well, it's really, it's really for me to determine that. Right. 
Yeah. Um, but mine was easier because like I have a I have a scar on my neck, so it's very visible and so people are often up. looking at it. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I don't know, if it'd been up my bum, maybe I wouldn't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I uh I've had a number of, of uh surgeries and medical procedures over the years and I like I am I like talking about it. I think it's fascinating and weird. And sometimes people get a little squirmy. Uh, Catherine doesn't like to hear about my tendon reattachment because that ah. was a process. But yeah, I uh, uh, but I just got a colonoscopy recently and I was like, I'm going to make a video about this. And I did. And it was great. And Catherine, trooper that she is, like as I was coming out of the, the anesthesia, she turns the camera right on and she filmed the whole thing of me being really on drugs and it was very funny to watch <laughs> after the fact. What a team. What a team. Well, yeah. And I bet also to a lot of people, this is a useful service because they're thinking, okay, if I have to go through that doesn't seem yeah. as bad. Yeah. Well, I've had so many colonoscopies now that it's like... Alright, no need to brag. <laughs> Do you need to? Do you have any questions about colonoscopies? I could give you answers. Sure. How long do they take? Oh, the, well, it, anywhere like when they're in there is like fifteen to thirty minutes. It's very quick. Um, they go in, they look around, and, uh, and and so like for the doctor, it is not a long time. Which, when you see how much it costs, you start to question that. Although I imagine that when you see how much it costs, you don't. So that's great. <laughs> um. And uh, yeah, but but how long it takes for you is a different uh, experience because like one, the day beforehand is kind of part of the procedure because there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. You can't eat food. Mm. You have to take this stuff that makes you poop a lot. And that uh, is a bad day and is the uh, is by far the most time that gets invested into the process. Right. So colonoscopy eve is a bad day. Yes, but colonoscopy. Did you did you say colonoscopy? I didn't, but you just did. So that's right. the thing. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then, do they give you a video afterwards of, uh, of what they filmed? They didn't offer me a video, and I didn't ask. So I, I've heard that some people have gotten gotten video of their colonoscopy. So apparently, it's a service that is available. Uh, at some hospitals or maybe all and I just didn't ask I also know that you can ask to be awake during the colonoscopy that is an option that's available they don't present that option to you because almost no one takes it hmm I, I met up with a friend the other day who's actually a bowel doctor hmm. and uh, she had a colonoscopy herself last year and said she had it without anesthesia because she wanted as a professional as well as a patient to know mm -hmm. what it was like and she said that didn't hurt, but she had um, uh, she had the throat endoscopy, and that Ooh, was pretty yeah. gross. She had some sedation yep. for that, but the uh, colon one, uh, not a problem. The technology has come so far. Right up into your colon. <laughs> <laughs> this next question comes from Dermot, who asks, Dear Hank and John, my name is Dermot, and I'm 17 years old, and I'm currently looking into colleges and work... Uh, and I'm currently looking into colleges and work, and a lot of places uh, talk about coffee breaks for getting to know professors and other students, etc. But I strongly dislike the taste of coffee. What should I do during these coffee breaks? Get a hot chocolate and risk not looking adulty enough? Do I suck it up and order a drink I hate? Is this whole thing a metaphor? Not a puppet frog, Dermot. Oh, thanks you for explaining to me how your name was pronounced. I'm glad that we got it all out of the way at the end oh, there. I was wondering what the puppet frog... Thing was referring to right 
Uh, it's a pronunciation guide. It was helpful. No, I, I, I get that now. Yeah, it was helpful. Uh, I, so I think coffee break is a fig- it's kind of a figure of speech because uh, I don't really drink coffee either. But I've I've rarely had a problem at something described as a coffee break because usually tea or water at the very least are available. And then you mentioned hot chocolate. If you're at a place where you can order your own drinks, then um, just get whatever you like. I don't think anyone's thinking this is a test and Dermot fell because he did not literally drink coffee at the thing called a coffee break. So he's disobedient and must be stopped. And then if you need an excuse, like basically I have excuses ready to go for pretty much any situation. So I'd say with this, you could tell people you're giving up caffeine. Mm. You could bring your own drink in you know, a reusable flask or, or bottle. So if you want to drink milk, you can and no one would know. Um, I would say that when I went to college, there was a far bigger problem, beverage related, and that was that I was not interested in drinking alcohol, which is legal in Britain from the age of 18. So in college, everyone's at it. But because I was indifferent, I was regarded with great suspicion. And um, and also it just made a lot of social occasions very boring, being the sober person in a room of drunk people. So I just stopped going to quite a lot of things. But... But what I would say, Dermot, is that right now, the question you're asking is whether you should conform by doing something you don't want to do. And this question is not going to be just relevant to coffee. This is just the beginning of that question in your life. Oh, I think probably it is the continuation of that question. Even at 17, there I assume that there have been a number <laughs> of opportunities to do something to conform or to do the thing that feels right. Uh, oh, yeah. No, you're, I mean, you're, you're correct. I think that I would avoid hot chocolate myself. Like, I think that somebody might make, like, have an opinion about somebody who got hot chocolate at a coffee break. And it, maybe, so there's two, there's two opinions that somebody could have. One, they could be like, oh, come on, grow up, Dermot. Or two, they could be like, wow, that is a person who, does it, who doesn't mind doing something a little bit different. And so you're sort of rolling the dice on like you go the neutral route and just be like, yes, I will also get a coffee, even though I'm going to have to put a lot of sugar and milk in it until it basically tastes like hot chocolate anyway. Or you could be like, look, I'm, I'm going to people are going to be thinking something about this decision. And in general, we like in all circumstances, we try to do the thing that people aren't going to think about. Like that, like we do that all day, every day, where we, where we're sort of making the default choice because otherwise we have to deal with it. And I think it's great to sometimes not do that, um, and especially if it's allowing us to be a little bit more true to ourselves. Also, hot chocolate is delicious. I have a friend who doesn't drink any hot drinks; doesn't like them. Imagine the nightmare he's had through life. <laughs> I often will get to get get the iced coffee. They have so many choices now. There are so many things they do. that are available. You can have a, a green juice, even at a gas station. <laughs> I was at a gas station the other day, and there was a section in the refrigerator that said "healthy choice," and there was banana milk. And I looked at the banana Whoa. milk, and it had like thirty six grams of sugar in it. And I was like, "What's happening? What world America's is this happening? <laughs> it's America, that world." <laughs> Because you can use the word healthy without having to back it up with the reality. We're not good at we're not good at this. Or you're too good at it. It's true. It's true. We're just trying to live our lives in the best way we know how, which is sweetened. <laughs> and uh, and optimistically. 
Um, we've got a one response that comes from China who uh, says, To the Brothers Green, there's a fabulous device that is like a mesh screen door where the two sides come together with magnets. It's It easily opens as you walk through and then automatically closes behind you with the magnet closure. It's very inexpensive and the perfect solution to the chicken burglar problem that Andrea was facing in episode 182. We're going to put a link to it on the Patreon. Thank you, China, for your help. Oh, also, China says, I'm just China help, China. So I had to include that as well. Helen, do you have news from AFC Wimbledon for us? Oh, I sure do. Uh, AFC Wimbledon has come out victorious against last place Scunthorpe, which is not great news in that it was the expected outcome. But it is good news in that if they had lost that game, the season would definitely have been over. They're now in third to last place and have won four of their last five games, which is wild. The only other team in all of League One that has won four of the last five games is number three, Portsmouth. So if the entire season were just these last five games, AFC Wimbledon would be fighting to go up a league, not down a league. Unfortunately, they're still in the relegation zone and need to win more games in order to stay up. How many do they need to win? I don't know. I'm not John. We couldn't figure it out. And I can't see the future. (laughs) Uh, That's it. That's the whole thing. Good job. You did it. Thank you. It's, did it it's sound almost... like I knew what I was talking about? <laughs> well, I did my best to write some AFC Wimbledon news for Helen to read. I, 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 really I hope that John is it. proud of me. I'm proud are of you. you. Are you uh, are you excited about the possibility? Like, so this is the situation. We thought almost 100% that AFC Wimbledon was going, going down a league. But now they actually have a chance to stay up. And it's making me extra stressed out, which is oh. not what I need. But this is why sports are bad. <laughs> right. They make you stressed. They make Brits violent. <laughs> it's not like not like you guys have anything else to worry about right now. I, I do think people still prioritize misery about sports. Right. Well, honestly, you need something to worry about that doesn't matter when things that do matter are miserable. Um and yeah, I can't believe they've won four of their last five games. That's like, it's very good. It's very exciting. And I'm very happy. Uh, and and they are actually like, they're like basically one point away from out of the re- relegation zone because the two teams that are ahead of them in the relegation zone both lost their last games. So who knows? Anything is possible. Those teams need to keep losing and AFC Wimbledon needs to win. Do you want to hear some news from Mars? Love to, especially if there's no football on Mars. There isn't yet, though just. we're working toward that goal. Um, no. <laughs> or, or just sports. I'm sure the moment that there are people on Mars, there will, there will be sports. In fact, it wasn't long. We were on the moon before people were golfing there. So <laughs> we tend to think of meteor impacts uh, or meteorite impacts as pretty bad for life. Um, you get all that dramatic... Uh, climate change, you get tsunamis, you get massive shock waves, you get dust clouds that lead to not having any light, which is important for life. So uh, that is usually bad. But also, maybe early on, 
at least on Mars, they could be good for life. The Mars Curiosity rover made some surprise findings a while back where they found both nitrites and nitrates, which are nitrogen-containing ionic compounds, that are vital to the chemistry that forms the basis of life on Earth as we know it. But scientists were like, that does not make any sense. There is very little nitrogen on the surface of Mars. Where could that have come from? And they did an experiment recently back on Earth where they simulated the conditions, kind of, with lasers, of a meteorite smacking into the atmosphere of Mars. And they did a number of different uh, atmospheric concentrations. So like how thick the atmosphere was, a number of different atmospheric um Composition, so like what molecules are in the atmosphere. And they found that in certain uh, certain atmospheres, which were fairly thick and contained both uh, carbon dioxide or all, like these things, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, and hydrogen, that these nitrites would form. And so they're thinking that this may be how these nitrites formed, and it indicates that there was a period of time where uh, in you know billions of years ago when Mars had a pretty thick atmosphere that had those things in it. Uh, which is really cool that you can maybe infer a previous atmosphere uh, from chemicals now found on the surface of Mars by uh, the Mars Curiosity rover. Whereas, you know, we can also, we can infer things about like the geology of Mars, about the rocks and about whether there was water on the surface, but figuring out what the atmosphere was like is a really tricky question. And this is a pretty good way of actually teasing out some data about that, which is really neat. Nice. And the atomic number of nitrogen is still seven. It's seven. hundred percent. Pretty sure. Going to Google it right now just to make sure. <laughs> uh, Maybe you nitrogen. said hundred percent prematurely. Yeah, it's seven, you guys. It's seven. Yes. Carbon is six, obviously, because that uh-huh. is very, like, the most important thing to know in chemistry. Not that I'm ashamed, but I am. Helen, it's been a joy to make a podcast with you. Thank you for doing this today. Hank, thank you so much for letting me be a temporary green brother. Oh, gosh. If only it could be permanent. Um, I would love to ever guest host on any of your podcasts if if the opportunity presents itself. Cool. Uh, I might rope you in. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I kill my (laughs) co-hosts. Yeah, I mean, you don't need them. No. If you want to send us questions, you can do that. Please do. Thank you to everybody who does it at hankandjohn at gmail.com. There would be no podcast without you. Uh, You can follow me. I'm at Hank Green on Twitter. Helen, what is your Twitter? It is Helen Zaltzman. And that is with a Z and then another Z later. Oh, good. Are, are, Are you of German ancestry? No, it's a Lithuanian name via South Africa. And uh, oh, okay. people go a little bit awry with the consonants. Sure. <laughs> yeah, as, as we do, hum- like humans, spellings, they go all over the place. They see Zs and they think, no, it can't be that. And they correct them to another mm. letter, which is mm-hmm. upsetting. This podcast is edited by Nicholas Jenkins. It's produced by Rosiana Hals Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our head of community and communications is Victoria Bongiorno. The music that you're hearing now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to, to be, be awesome. awesome. Hey, uh, update. I got something wrong. Scunthorpe isn't the last place team in 
League One, that's Bradford City, which is actually a game still to come. Scunthorpe is actually ranked above AFC Wimbledon, though not dramatically, so that actually is a really good outcome because Scunthorpe went down, Wimbledon went up, eventually, maybe, they're only two points ahead of Wimbledon now, Wimbledon can be ahead of Scunthorpe, in which case they would definitely be out of the relegation zone. So, Wimbledon is, from what I can tell, Three points from being out of the relegation zone. I think that's... Yep, I think so. Sorry, all you Scunthorpe fans. Didn't mean to say you were last place. That honor goes to Bradford City, which is the final game of the season. So that would be very scary if we get to that point and then we're playing against the worst team in the league and then they win, even though they're not going anywhere. They should just let Wimbledon win, right? Okay, bye.